Mark chapter 1, beginning a new series. Who is this? Uh, in Mark, I believe it's chapter 4 or 5. We'll find out in a minute here. In Mark chapter 4, towards the end, after Jesus calms the storm, the very end of Mark 4, the disciples ask, who then is this? Uh, they had thought he was a teacher, but they're starting to wonder if he is more. So that's where the question for this series comes from. To get the ball rolling, maybe you want to discuss, I, I mean, we're a pretty small group, so maybe people will be, feel brave to discuss that loud, but I wonder, what's the best news you've ever gotten? The best news you've ever gotten. Yeah, I thought of the same thing of, of healthy pregnancy after miscarriages, that good news. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, Chris. I have two negative cancer biopsies in the last four years. Yeah, that's good news, getting negative biopsy. Singing, getting, getting into college, getting that letter, that's a... Uh, good news or not you'll get there I went to a school that'll take anyone I can hook you up if you <laughs> yeah Greta getting sorry a friend getting baptized and hearing news of that so good news well trying to get the ball rolling because Mark's gospel opens the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God and that word gospel is literally good news let's start with the introduction and then I'll make some comments about Mark's gospel as a whole and then we'll see where we're at for time wise the first three verses the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And suddenly silent. <laughs> it's a very dense beginning to Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. So in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the ancient world, this word gospel means good news. It's used to report victories. Uh, so after the Philistines dis defeat King Saul at the end of 1 Samuel, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says they went around evangelizing, proclaiming the good news that they had defeated Saul. Caesar Augustus's birthday was proclaimed as a gospel in 9 BC. It would have been about his 50th birthday or so and, and proclaimed to the whole empire, this is good news, Caesar Augustus's birthday. The context probably that Mark is drawing on most immediately, though, comes from the book of Isaiah. And in fact, um, I'm going to be arguing throughout this series that the book of Isaiah really shapes a lot of how Mark thinks about Jesus. Uh, 50, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
Likewise, Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the wrong passage. Nothing about good news there. I wrote down the wrong reference, huh? 64, 1 through 3, that's not right either. Well, at any rate, again, Isaiah talks about good news somewhere else in Isaiah, and I wrote down totally the wrong. Boy, that is embarrassing to do. Sixty-one, one through three. Here we go. Uh, that's a common. Well, it's a common form of scribal error when your eye jumps ahead, and so I had written down meant to write sixty-one, one through three, and I saw the one, and anyway, so. Common form of scribal error. Uh, 61, 1 through 3, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The other one's about robes stained in blood, not good news in the same sense. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, that's the kind of good news that's in the background here. And Mark is saying this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even that word beginning that he begins with is perhaps significant. What does it mean to be the beginning? Well, it is the beginning of the book. That seems a bit obvious. Um, is it David Copperfield that to begin with I was born? Is that, you know, it's, it seems kind of like an obvious opening like that. But this word beginning, arche, is actually the same word that's used in the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1, enhe arche, in the beginning. And so there's a bit of an echo between these two, between Genesis 1 and Mark 1, the beginning of creation, the beginning of God's acts of new creation. But this word arche can also mean principle. So it's used in Proverbs, for example, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that's probably the sense Mark is using it here. He's saying this is the sort of basic principles of the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to lay out for you the basics. And indeed, Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. Uh, and it's not because Mark's like a bad student who had to write so many pages and barely made it to the word count and turned it in. No, Mark's is a very distilled gospel. Uh, he has a few representative miracles. He has a few representative parables. It's very distilled. Mark is, I'm convinced, very thoughtful about how he orders things, what he includes. And indeed, we see here, what is this, who is this good news about? Three titles, Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, uh, we reflected on that a bit at Christmas time, didn't we? Of uh, the name that Joseph is told to name this baby. Jesus from Yeshua, Joshua, meaning God saves. Christ, not his last name as sometimes we think or, or kind of slip into that way of thinking, but a title, the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, especially priests and kings are anointed. 
And if we get to Jesus' baptism, we'll see he's anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And then the Son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, God speaking, uh, or, or in the second Psalm, God speaking to the king says, you are my son. And the Son of God seems to have been used occasionally as a royal title or a messianic title. And so a question right from the start is, what kind of claim is Mark making when he says Jesus is the Son of God? Is he saying he's a king like David? Is he a Messiah or something more? And that question, who is this, it really runs through the whole gospel. And so then at the very end of the gospel, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Uh, God a couple times says, this is my son in the gospel of Mark. Evil spirits say, we know that you're the son of God, but no human calls Jesus the son of God in the gospel of Mark until he breathes his last breath and the centurion says, this man was the son of God. And so Mark's gospel begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then at the end, it's like, okay, you've seen the whole story. Here's what the centurion thinks. What do you think? Okay, well, that's how Mark starts. Oh, no, he keeps going. I read these two quotes. As it is written, he says in Isaiah the prophet, but he actually quotes two different passages. The first verse, verse 2, is a quote from Malachi 3, verse 1, that we actually looked at in our Advent series in Sunday mornings. And then uh, uh, verse 3 is actually from Isaiah chapter 40. It alerts us right away that the ancient world is different than the modern world. That hopefully doesn't come as a surprise to you. (laughs) But in the modern world with modern journalism, footnoting and all that sort of thing, we tend to think, okay, if you're saying something's from Isaiah, it better darn well be from Isaiah. Well, in the ancient world, the conventions are a bit different. It's saying, you know, I'm going to have an amalgamation of quotes here. Isaiah is the most prominent. And so it's fine to say, as Isaiah said, and then you're kind of introducing it with a passage from another prophet. Um, There's more than that going on here. Mark's bringing together these prophecies about God coming, and he's putting them together. Mark's doing a couple things opening with these. The most straightforward is he's introducing the ministry of John the Baptist. But why should he begin his gospel with these prophecies introducing the ministry of John the Baptist? Well, I think for two reasons. First, it's showing that what's happening here, this gospel, this good news, is a fulfillment of, of Old Testament scripture. Okay, this isn't a new thing totally separate from Israelite religion, from Judaism, from the Old Testament, but rather it's the culmination, the fulfillment of the scriptures. But the second thing is that we note in both of these passages, Malachi 3, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, 1, where is the God of justice, the people ask? God responds, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Not before the Messiah, but before me. Likewise, Isaiah 43, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Again, Isaiah 40 is not saying prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Prepare the way for the God of Israel to come. So John the Baptist comes. His ministry fulfills these uh, promises. 
He comes to prepare the way. But who does John the Baptist prepare the way for? It's not a trick question. Or maybe it is. Who does John the Baptist prepare the way for? The Messiah. He says, the one who comes after me is mightier than I. In John's gospel, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, when he sees Jesus, right? He's preparing the way for Jesus. But in preparing the way for Jesus, he's fulfilling promises in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the Lord, the God of Israel, to come. So who is this then who's coming? It looks like a man, (laughs) merely a man, and yet his coming or in his coming, the God of Israel comes. Okay, that's how Mark sets up his gospel, the first three verses. A, a, a dense set of titles and quotations setting up for us these live questions about who is Jesus, how we should think about him. What's interesting, though, and we'll see if we get all the way through the baptism or not, but what's interesting is even including the voice Jesus hears at the baptism, none of the disciples who are with Jesus, they don't know this as the story unfolds. Of course, Mark, by the end, recognizes this, and that's why he writes his gospel this way. But as the story unfolds with Peter being called and walking with Jesus, all these things, he doesn't know Jesus is the Christ, at least to start with. He confesses it later on. He doesn't know Jesus is the Son of God, at least to start with. He confesses it later on. Uh, He doesn't recognize that this is, in fact, Israel's God come in the flesh. And so we as the readers have a privileged position in technical terms. We know more than the characters do. Um, It's a bit like if you read mysteries, some mysteries, you know who did the crime before the detective does, right? And you're reading to find out how the detective will catch the criminal. Uh, And it's it's a bit like that. We know more than the characters in the gospel do. Where does Mark go? Yeah, Nick. Sure. Yeah, so so here um, in Mark's gospel, John's very brief. So we don't, if you had Mark alone, you wouldn't even realize he was a relative of Jesus or any of that backstory. He just says, um, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop and untie. I baptize with water, he baptizes with the Spirit. Well, even baptizing with the Spirit signifies something. But reading the other Gospels, it does seem that Mark has some clear sense that Jesus is fulfilling a lot of the Old Testament in his ministry. So, um, and yet he asks this question. He sends his disciples to say, are you the one? Uh, and, and I think that's not in Mark. I think that's in Luke or John. I think it's in John uh, where that happens. In John, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, and then it, it, it's interesting then too in John when he says, are you the one? Jesus says, tell them what you see, the blind see and the lame walk. Well, um, it's, I think probably those miracles are telling. In, in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah, that's a promise of the Lord's coming, of the day of the Lord, is that the blind will see, the lame will walk. And so the miracles Jesus does, you know, there's all kinds of problems people have, broken arms. Well, we don't see him healing a lot of broken arms. Um, you know, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. It's very specific things he miracles he does, and they do seem to fulfill these Old Testament promises of the coming of the Lord. So, um, so yeah, John, 
it, it, it's interesting. He sees, he has this great faith and then he's asking questions, but then he gets an answer. So, um, so what he knows at what point is, 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 does that help at all? Maybe that's a fancy way of saying I'm not totally sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when he applies the verse to himself, he must have some sense that he's preparing the way for the Lord to come and that the Lord is particularly acting through Jesus um, in some uh, unique, uh, unprecedented way. Exactly what John, John the Baptist's Christology was, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. But yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, Jesse. I think so, but let's wait just a second to get there. Um, let's, let me make just a couple comments on Mark's gospel as a whole, what to expect, and then we'll get into the story here for a few minutes. I've always liked in the uh, James Bond movies and Indiana Jones movies that the movies start with James Bond already on a mission or Indiana Jones already mid-adventure. Uh, and then, you know, then he gets a, the main mission. That's the main story. But it starts right with the action. I've always liked that. Mark's gospel starts like that. There's no birth stories. There's no stories about Jesus' childhood. There's no background for John the Baptist. It just starts in the middle of the action. And indeed, Mark's gospel is not only the shortest, but it is action-packed. It keeps moving. Do you see in verse 10, it says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Verse 18, after Jesus calls uh, uh, Simon and Andrew, immediately they left their nets. In fact, the word immediately is used over 40 times in Mark's gospel. That works out to something like four times a chapter. Uh, it's not, well, th- you know, things kind of meander along. It's no, immediately, 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 immediately. It is an action-packed gospel. But Mark also carefully structures his gospel. The first eight chapters roughly describe Jesus' ministry. Uh, He has some conflicts early on with uh, various leaders. There's a series of miracles, a series of parables, a few represented miracles, a few represented parables. Then at chapter 8, the middle of chapter 8, it turns a corner and Jesus heads out towards Jerusalem uh, knowing what awaits him. And there's a carefully structured section there on the way to Jerusalem. As as it were, we're journeying with Jesus as he prepares his disciples for what will happen in Jerusalem. In that carefully structured section, three times Jesus teaches his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and when I'm there, I'm going to be put to death and I will rise again. And the disciples don't understand. They say, no, that's not right. The Messiah wins. (laughs) Uh, Remember, I I guess I'm on a Princess Bride kick today, but I remember in the Princess Bride at one point, the grandson interrupts the grandpa and he says, but who gets Humperdinck? Why are you even reading me this story if no one kills Prince Humperdinck? And the disciples are kind of like that. They're saying, hang on a second here. What do you mean you're going to go die? Who gets the Romans? Who gets Herod? You know, who gets rid of all these terrible people if you're going to go and die? And in between those or, or following on each one of those predictions of his own death, there's teaching on discipleship. The first shall be last. 
Uh, if you want to, uh, I, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You must be the servant of all. These teachings about this really upside down stuff we were talking about this morning. He's saying once you get your head around the power dynamics of the kingdom, which are totally different than the power dynamics of the world, you start to make sense of why the Son of Man goes to the cross to win his victory instead of coming at the head of an army, something like that. So that's chapter 8 through 11. They're journeying to Jerusalem, and it's this dense passage. Uh, uh, the most uh, block of Jesus' teaching, well, that's not quite right, but anyways, there in chapter uh, uh, 8 through 11. And then from chapter 11 till, or 8 through 10, 11 through 16, sorry, I'm getting... One through eight is the first section ministry. Middle of eight through the end of chapter 10 is the journey to Jerusalem. 11 through 16 is Jesus's final week in Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, uh, the cleaning of the temple, the debates with the various groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple leaders, uh, uh, the Last Supper, the plot. All of that is in that in those final six chapters. So there's three main sections to Mark's gospel. Any general questions about Mark, I guess? Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Yeah, so I, uh, I didn't prepare to answer that question tonight. So I'm going to say some things, and then we can come back around on that. Uh, in Acts, there's a John Mark, and I think that, that that's the Mark that traditionally is associated with this book. Um, and it also is tradition that Mark is recording especially Peter's account of Jesus's life or Peter's recollection. So, so John, the Gospel of Mark has often been associated with, with Peter's own teaching. Um, there's kind of a strange thing in the manuscripts where our manuscripts almost universally call the Gospels the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and yet it's not in the body of the text. So it begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not the beginning of Mark's Gospel or something like that. Um, one of my professors at Regent suggested, and I think I'm persuaded that this seems like a plausible view, is in the ancient world, before the invention of the Codex, which uh, the rise of Christianity leads to the rise of the Codex, they go hand in hand, which a Codex is sort of a primitive book or a different way of storing your things, um, you would have scrolls, right? So the New Testament would not have been one scroll, but it would have been a series of scrolls. And you stored your scrolls, uh, there's shelves in there, I guess that's why I'm pointing there, but you store your, sh- your scrolls sticking out. So the ends of the scrolls are sticking out of your shelf. And if you go through, you don't want to pull all your scrolls off and dig through till you find the right one. And so my professor's suggestion, and I'm not sure if it's original to him or not, but is that scrolls perhaps had strings with tags on them to say it's this scroll so that you don't have to fish through them all. And it makes a bit of sense. A bit like a tea bag has a, you know, a little wise quote on your, um, which brand is it that has the wise quotes? I don't know, but uh, uh, a bit like that. You'd have a little tag saying the gospel of Mark, something like that. And that would explain why when things switch over to the codex, you have this text that's always attached to the scroll, and yet it's not part of the main body of the text. It makes a good deal of sense to me. Um, and I'm quite happy to say, yeah, the traditional authors, I don't see anyone. I mean, it's funny to deny Mark wrote it, even though we don't know who Mark was and say someone else that wasn't Mark, but that's the important thing. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me to deny Mark wrote it um, since we don't know much about him except that he wrote a gospel. So uh, does that, does that help it all down? I'll look into it some more and have a better answer six months down the road or something when I remember to come back around. Any other questions or thoughts on the 
Gospel of Mark as a whole. All right, well, let's dig into a little bit here and then we'll turn to prayer. We'll get probably through John's ministry. Verses four through eight, uh, John the Baptist ministry. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey or wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In addition to John being present in the four Gospels, uh, John is also known from Josephus, the late first century uh, Jewish historian, writes about uh, John the Baptist in connection with Herod the Great. Uh, And there he is described as being a a popular figure with the masses, well known for his godliness and for his call to righteousness. Uh, And so uh, if you take Josephus as sort of representative of mainstream Judaism in the first century, uh, it seems to be a pretty positive picture of John the Baptist, that he fits the model of Old Testament prophets calling people back to God and to live righteously. And so Mark or all the gospel writers saying John approved of Jesus, it's kind of putting a stamp on Jesus saying a figure that you already well respect or a figure that you respect already. I'm sorry, my words aren't working here. This well-respected figure, that's I guess what I'm trying to say, approved of Jesus. And so you likewise should at least give Jesus a hearing um, by opening with John. That's not to say that John didn't historically do these things, but it's just saying drawing that connection. That's why it would be um, important to Mark's audience, or at least a segment of Mark's audience. In Mark's gospel, John appears. (laughs) It's a funny way to introduce him. It's like he almost comes out of nowhere. And he certainly seems to be a bit of a wild figure. He's clothed with camel hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Does that, uh, kids maybe, does that dress remind you of any other Bible figures? Adults? Elijah. Yeah, Elijah's described similarly. And I think Elijah also spends a great deal of time in the wilderness. John appeared. He's baptizing in the wilderness. Okay, Jesse's question, what to make of the wilderness? And it's a good question. Um, A number of times the prophets go to the wilderness. So Elijah, for example, goes into the wilderness. But I think probably the sense is it's in the wilderness between the exodus from Egypt and entering into the promised land. When the people come out, they come into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and there God reveals his law to them. He tells them, this is how you're to live as a people. Then they go into the land, and yet throughout the book of Isaiah, for example, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, um, in the, uh, I think in the Advent Minor Prophets, we talked about the wilderness once or twice. The prophets look back at it as this sort of honeymoon period, like, uh, okay, Maybe I'll stop. Maybe I'll promise to stop after this. But Princess Bride, again, remember, go back to the start. You said go back to the beginning. Isn't that what uh, Fezzik says? Uh, I'm the only one who's remembering this. The giant after he's, uh, what's, the, what's the wise guy's name? You watched this in the car the other week. 
the bald guy, what's his name? After he dies, then Fezzik the giant, he says, you said, go back to the be- Yeah. And or, 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 anyway, so or, or maybe it's Inigo Montoya who says, go back to the beginning. And he's back at the bar where they first met drinking. Anyways, uh, that's not the wilderness, but saying this idea of going back to the beginning, that it's a, it's a reset, a restart uh, uh, to the people of God, in a sense, going back to the wilderness to hear God's voice again. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. 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 Yeah, certainly that 40-day period, and it's, it's likewise 40 days in, in Mark coming up here, but that 40-day period uh, echoes Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, um, and then he comes back into the land and starts conquering the land, as it were. So, yeah, there's, there is these, those connections there with the wilderness. Baptism, it's not exactly clear what the prehistory of baptism was. Um, uh, it seems perhaps that Ju- uh, Gentile converts to Judaism would have been baptized. Um, uh, there's some evidence that at the Essien Qumran community that's on the uh, edge of the Dead Sea that there was ritual baptism or washing on a regular basis. John's baptism seems to be a one-off, not a repeated thing. So it's not like people are coming out every weekend to get rebaptized by him, but but a one-off. And I will note that the language, um, whatever tradition you grew up in, in terms of baptism, you read the language and it seems straightforward and obvious that this is what's happening there. Uh, and yet the language actually isn't quite that obvious. So if you grew up Baptist, you'd think, well, yeah, they're going down into a river. Jesus is in the water. He comes out of the water. Yeah, that's a full immersion baptism. What else could it be? Um, the Jordan River oftentimes during the year didn't run very deep, though. And there wasn't just like tons of water around in Israel. And so it makes sense that you'd walk out in the water and do this kind of thing as well. Uh, and so if you grew up in one of these kind of traditions, then you'd think that that's what's happening. And so the language is open to more than one construal. I guess that's all I'm trying to say. Um, and as good Pado baptists we think it was this kind of thing that he used to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not a, 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 a mark of orthodoxy one way or the other. Yeah, Jesse. Sure. Because a camel's an unclean animal, but that doesn't mean you can't use their leather. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of that, wearing camel hair. I don't know if it'd be comfortable or not. It's just, yeah, well, it is. <laughs> was it readily available? Was it woven or was it? I guess. You repent, turn around, you go, yeah. And so, the Lord, it's in the way, but not a robe that he's getting ready for the Lord. He's getting ready for them. And then in verses 7 and 8, this message comes, He who is mightier than I, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so question, what is John saying about Jesus here? What can we infer from his statements? Yeah. Yeah. So John's, uh, if you kind of do some back and forth reasoning, John, Jesus says, John is the greatest of the prophets of the old covenant. John says, Jesus is mightier than I. What does that mean? This is something more than just a prophet. Um, 
if you reason between the gospels like that at any, at any rate. Um, yeah, mightier than I. And his baptism differs. Right, so John's baptism is one with water. Jesus's is a baptism with the Spirit. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, yeah, it does seem to be the prerogative of, of God. Um, and that, again, is picking up these Old Testament hopes about um, having a new heart put in you, having a new spirit put in you, um, something that God will do in the last days of the book of Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all of you, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men and old men. Uh, so it's picking up, again, these Old Testament hopes and promises. The hopes and fears of all the years. I do like that line from the... Is that, oh, holy night? Little town of Bethlehem, that's right. That's right. Well, the baptism of Jesus is exciting, but we'll take it with the temptation of Jesus next week, and we're going to stop for there so we can turn to our time of prayer. Uh, for those on the live stream, you're welcome to keep, keep with us, although the audio may get a little rough. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, how about prayer request? I know there's a lot.